0: Hi, Steve here. As parents of a 32-year-old son with multiple disabilities, there have been a number of times when we did not agree with the policy decision that affected the services our son has received. And I know we're not alone in this frustration. I've heard similar stories from a number of different parents over the years. Many of us have voiced a complaint and perhaps even asked how to contest a decision. But most parents overloaded already with all the other educational, medical, medical and family issues confronting a family living with disability, eventually accept that it is what it is and make do with the hand we've been dealt. There are undoubtedly some situations in which what we ask for is not possible for Medicaid to provide. As parents, we have learned to advocate for our children and understandably we want the best and we want it now. But there are other situations in which the decision by our local community mental health organizations or consolidated school district just doesn't smell right, and we believe our child's rights to a particular service, program, or benefit are not being adequately considered. There is a process to follow when we wish to dispute a decision regarding a denial or adverse ruling. The first step we must take is to follow those procedures. However, that is not the only step we can take. Michigan Disability Rights, formerly known as Michigan Protection and Advocacy, is the independent private nonprofit organization designated by the Governor of the State of Michigan to advocate and protect the legal rights of people with disabilities in Michigan? Disability Rights Michigan services include information and referral, short term assistance, selected individual and legal representation, systemic advocacy, monitoring, and training. Today we visit with Michelle Roberts, the Executive Officer of Disability Rights Michigan. I think you will find what Michelle has to share enlightening and informative, and it may provide an answer to the question too often on the minds of parents, individuals with disabilities, and care providers. Those questions are, where do I go when I disagree, and who will listen and advocate for me? And now on to our interview with Michelle Roberts. This is Navigating Life as We Know It, and I'm your host, Steve Johnson. Today, our guest is Michelle Roberts, the CEO of Michigan Protection and Advocacy Services. Welcome, Michelle.
1: Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Lately, I begin a podcast by asking, in the age of COVID-19, how are you navigating your life?
1: (laughs) Very carefully. We are an agency of about 52 employees, and we have two offices, our main office in Lansing and one up in Marquette. And we are currently all working remotely. We're doing the best that we can to continue to have our information and referral service available to folks and continuing to provide investigations and advocacy and legal representation and everything that we do. A new way of doing business for us, working remotely like this, that's not something that we've ever done. And so there's been an impact, obviously, on our ability to be immediately responsive to some things since. No one is physically present to answer the phone during normal business hours. We're we're asking that folks leave voicemail messages, and then our staff are checking that multiple times throughout the day and returning those calls. So there's a little bit of a delay in that sense. But all in all, we've been able to manage and adjust and continue um, working remotely and just finding a new way to do business along with everybody else in the world right now.
0: It's a discovery process. Uh, There's a lot of concern about people with disabilities kind of becoming invisible during the crisis. Are you getting more or less or about the same number of phone calls or inquiries?
1: We've actually gotten fewer inquiries. There are days when it's uh, a little more typical, similar to the call load that we would get prior to COVID, but we've gotten fewer calls, some bursts on certain days for whatever reason. Often, near the end of the week, there tends to be an uptick in calls, which isn't really unusual. Mondays are usually fairly heavy, and then uh, later Thursdays and Fridays, and that is fairly standard just because we aren't open on the weekends ever, and so folks are calling heavy on Mondays and then calling before the weekend because a lot of decisions and changes occur, unfortunately, as we approach the weekend for folks, so that's fairly typical. The types of calls that we've gotten have changed somewhat. There's been a lot of questions about COVID-related issues like the stimulus money, you know, who gets that? What do they do with that? How would they know that they get it? How do they ensure that they get it? Uh, Because a lot of our clients don't file taxes. Some questions about evictions based on some of the, uh, the governor's orders for stays on evictions and things like that. But also, we've seen an increase more recently in uh, issues and calls related to concerns in facility settings like hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, prisons, nursing homes, group homes, congregate type facility settings where people are and there's concerns about safety and you know the availability of personal protective equipment or people not getting their needs met or not getting maybe some of their usual services that they might get because So many things have stopped because of COVID and, you know, shortages of staffing and things like that. So we do still get some of the regular calls. Our highest call volume has always been in the area related to special education. And because schools are closed, those calls have stopped almost entirely. There have been some questions related to the continuation of learning and some of the requirements that are out now. That schools then close, closed, but they're to be providing instruction and, and homework and such for students. But the call volume on education has really stopped pretty much entirely for the moment.
0: Got to be very different than yeah, what you're used to. It
1: is different, but it's, you know, it's not just, that's not unique to us. It's different for everybody. And so there is some natural understanding of that, that everybody in the world is in the same situation. And so there's, you know, there is some understanding there.
0: Michelle, many people have heard about Michigan Protection Advocacy Services, but I would hazard a guess that many don't really have much of a clear understanding about what MPASS does. Would you give sure. us the 50,000-foot description of MPASS in what you do, who you do it for, who you serve, how you serve them?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. Let me start by just kind of giving you the nickel tour of our history and how, how we came to exist and why. Back in the 70s, there was an institution on Stanton Island for individuals with pretty significant developmental type disabilities, and it was called Willowbrook. And Geraldo Rivera was made aware by a psychiatrist who had been let go from his job there had been contacted and uh, informed about some concerns related to the conditions and really just the overall treatment of the residents at that institution. And so one night, Geraldo and the psychiatrist went to the facility using the psychiatrist's keys, which even though he had been let go from his role there, he still had his keys. And they walked about the facility and filmed what they saw. And... Even back in those days when institutions were quite plentiful and was really kind of a part of the norm back then, the conditions and the what they saw was really awful. Geraldo commented about the smell and just how it smelled of death, and it was one of the saddest places ever. People that were there for care and services were malnourished. Many of them were naked, the floor covered in their own waste. Many of them were being kept in adult-sized cribs, and there really was very little engagement with staff and the residents, and so they were just basically being warehoused there, but warehoused in a really awful way. After that visit, Geraldo aired that expose, which got a lot of attention, and there happened to be a member of Congress's family that was a resident of that facility, and people were rightfully outraged not only were facilities common, but people expected that people were taking care of people properly in the way that we would expect here in the United States. And so Congress got together and felt that because the people who were responsible for caring for people with disabilities in that facility were not being good stewards and upholding their responsibilities, that somebody needed to be put in charge of making sure that they do that. And so they wrote what was called the PAD Act. Which stands for Protection and Advocacy for Individuals with Developmental Disabilities, and that required that there be a protection and advocacy system in every state and territory to uphold and enforce the legal rights of people with developmental disabilities. And so that's how the Protection and Advocacy, or the PNAs, were really created. There is a protection and advocacy agency designated in every state and territory. And there is also a Native American Protection and Advocacy Agency as well. So there are 57 of us across the nation. A number of years after that, Congress decided to write another act, which was Protection and Advocacy for Individuals with Mental Illness. So it basically was the same idea, but it was specific to people with mental health-related issues. After that, they wrote another statute that basically covered all other types of disabilities. Since that time, there have been a number of, there have been six additional federal programs and uh, statutes that have been written to either provide protection and advocacy for specific disability groups, like individuals with traumatic brain injury, or specific topics like access to assistive technology or access to voting. But it's all related to people with disabilities. And so with each of those new statutes came dedicated funding. And the only requirement for someone to be eligible for PNA related services is that they have to have a disability. PNAs are often thought of as a watchdog agency because we are charged with upholding and enforcing the legal and civil rights of people with disabilities in our state or territory. Our job is to make sure that the agencies and entities who are responsible for providing services, care, what have you, that they're doing it in accordance with the laws, rules, and policies that govern them. And if they don't, we have the ability, the authority, and the responsibility to change that and address that. There are a few things about us that make us different from other advocacy organizations. There's lots and lots of different advocacy organizations and groups out there that do wonderful things and are absolutely necessary, but there are three particular things that make the protection and advocacy system different. One is that we have attorneys. So while we are a private nonprofit organization, we are federally funded and federally mandated to uphold the legal rights for people. And so that often requires lawyers. And so we have attorneys and we, so we have the ability to sue and we also have the ability to sue in our own name, which is quite unique. When Conscious wrote all of those apps, one of the beautiful things that they did was they wrote in what we call access authority. And that authority gives us access to people, places, records, information, staff, videos, investigations, you name it. It gives us access to all kinds of information, including protected information that no one else can get so that we can conduct an investigation, and we can provide advocacy for our clients in order to uphold and enforce their legal rights. And so that's something that is really, really unique and specific to the PNA system. We can go into prisons, jails, you know, group homes, hospitals, uh, you, you name it. We have the ability to go there to conduct our business on behalf of someone or a group of people with disabilities. And the third and final thing that makes us unique is that we are a client-choice-based organization. And what that means is that we honor the expressed wishes and choices of the individual with the disability. So for us, because we are a legal agency, we refer to our the people that we work for as clients. And the clients for us are, is the individual with the disability. Regardless of type of disability, regardless of the severity of the disability, regardless of guardianship status, and so that is something that is quite different from a lot of the other advocacy organizations as well. Not good, bad, or otherwise, but just very different. We provide short-term, short-term advice and information to folks who contact us, so anybody who calls us speaks to a live advocate and gets information. We answer questions. We provide technical assistance materials, whatever, to be able to answer their questions or provide them with information that may help them to self-advocate. We also accept some individual cases for investigation and individual representation by non-attorney advocates. And then we also have attorneys who do provide some legal Representation, but often um, are working on some of our bigger legal strategies like class action lawsuits and that sort of thing. And we also do a lot of legislative related advocacy where we educate policymakers on issues facing people with disabilities are facing, maybe loopholes in the law that if they were closed or changed, that they would increase protections and rights and choices and opportunities for people with disabilities, or even areas maybe where the law is lacking or policy is lacking. We do media advocacy. I mean, there's just a wide range of services that we provide to people with disabilities and that we use to advocate on behalf of the folks in our state. So our services are free, including when folks do have individual legal representation. We have very few attorneys. I mean, the majority of our staff are non-attorney advocates, and that's because So much of our advocacy, even though it is all based in law, so much of that can be done by non-attorneys. We're always looking towards systemic change. So we get the, you know, we're able to maximize our resources best when we are able to get systemic change and make a change for everyone in the state of Michigan who's similarly situated versus one case at a time on an individual basis. So we don't take every case. Not every person gets an attorney. Not every case needs an attorney to do that. And so we really try to reserve our attorneys and our other resources to help us to promote that systemic change so that we can maximize our resources and make the biggest impact for the most number of folks.
0: And when you mention systemic change, I'm imagining here that you're finding a number of complaints that are very similar in nature about the same types of issues And that indicates there's a need to change something in the system because those keep reoccurring.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, one other thing that I should mention, because we're federally funded, our federal funders all require that we set what are called priorities or, or we think of as focus areas because we don't have enough time or staff or money to address every single issue that every single person who contacts us about in every instance. So we get anywhere from six to 8,000 calls and requests for assistance every year. And we can't possibly meet all of those needs. The federal government wants us to identify areas where we're really going to focus our efforts, where we think that we can make an impact in that year's time. And then at the end of the year, we're required to report back to them, this is what we did with the money and this is what we accomplished. And the idea is that year after year, we're building upon the successes and the progress that we've made in the years previous. So it's not just kind of a, a one and done sort of thing. There is a purpose and a strategy for where we're headed. Because, you know, let's face it, a lot of litigation and a lot of those bigger systemic changes take can take years. So we have to have long-term plans and long-term strategies, but we also have to have shorter term strategies of how we're going to get there step-by-step step and things that we can reasonably think that we can accomplish this year and then continue to work out from there. We certainly identify those priority-related areas based on issues that we're seeing, trends that we're seeing, whether it's across the entire state or certain pockets of the state. And the issue, you know, we we learn that by talking with our clients, the calls that we get, calls from other people, other advocates you know, other agencies and really kind of keeping an ear to the ground of what's going on out in the community. You know, what's happening in your community and what the challenges or concerns are for people with disabilities in your community might be very different than in my community or even up in the UP and in various areas when you're considering, you know, poverty and race and some of the other issues that cause inequities. Those are all you know those are all things that we have to take into consideration but that is all part of that systemic strategy
0: Now looking through your website and getting some background information on, on protection and advocacy there's mentioned okay. that you do uh, training outreach and seminars I'm, I'm imagining some of your input comes from those types of presentations not just people calling
1: Yes that's true in years past, we have done, we did a lot of special education related training. We have a, a special education advocate manual, which is something that has been widely requested throughout the state over the years, and that's updated on a regular basis. So, for example, we would go to various places throughout the state to provide training of kind of a, almost like a special education, right, 101 sort of training to parents and families other advocates, other agencies. I know in years past, we've trained like Department of Human Service staff workers, foster care workers. We train, you know, the courts and juvenile court workers. And yes, we do provide that. And of course, that always involves people providing us with feedback and talking with us, again, about issues that they're seeing in their communities or whatever the topic is, whether it's related to public mental health related services or guardianship or, you know, education services. That is a great way to hear from folks. Because, you know, you think about there are people who, younger people and other folks who get all of their information from social media. There are others who are more old-fashioned, like me, who They'll watch the news or who read the paper or, you know, so there's different ways that people receive information, which means there are also different ways that people are going to connect to us or be made aware of us. And so we have to have multiple ways of getting our information out there to folks because it it isn't just a one-size-fits-all for everybody.
0: There's also a, they call it P-A-B-S-S, Protection Advocacy for Beneficiaries of Social Security, Do you do training for people that work at Social Security?
1: No, actually, we don't. That is a a program that that actually falls under our education-related, or I'm sorry, our employment-related advocacy. And that particular program is most often used to advocate for individuals with disabilities who have acquired a work-related overpayment. And so what that means is Somebody who is receiving Social Security benefits, whether it's SSI benefits or Social Security disability benefits, and they are working, they're required to report their income on a monthly basis. And there are times when our clients report their income on a monthly basis. They, you know, show proof of income, copies of pay stubs, that sort of thing. And sometimes, for whatever reason, that information is delayed in getting processed or it gets lost or what have you. And then suddenly, sometime later, the client receives a notification from the Social Security Administration indicating that they have been overpaid on their Social Security benefits, that they were making too much money, their benefits should have lessened or stopped, but they continued to receive the checks. For example, somebody might get a letter that says You've been overpaid your benefits for X amount of time, and now you have an overpayment of $79,000. <laughs> so please send us a check for $79,000 sure. to reimburse us in the next 30 days. And, you know, obviously that it impacts people's continued benefits, which is also tied to people's ability to receive Medicaid insurance, which is critical for our clients. And so for folks who we can prove that they, in fact, did report their income as they're required to and show that, that the overpayment is actually a mistake, then we can get that overpayment waived and their benefits can continue and everything goes the way, you know, goes back how it should. For folks who maybe didn't report the way that they were supposed to and they really legitimately do have an overpayment, we can help them set up a repayment program. And so, even some payments as low as even ten dollars a month to show good faith effort that they're they're working to pay that back, but that allows them not to be entirely broke in the process. That you know that's that's what that tab program is used um, to do. The bottom line on that is that we don't want folks to be deterred from working. People want to work, but they also need to be able to maintain their benefits because they need to be able to survive financially and meet their needs, and they also need their health care. Making sure that that all works the way that it's supposed to is, is the purpose for that program.
0: And it's an incredibly difficult, complex formula between work and compensation and benefits. It's Yeah, it sure is. I, I could just imagine the look on someone's face opening something from Social Security and saying they, please send us $79,000 by the end of next month. It's like, sure. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, can, I can write that changing. check, but you I mean, can't cash it.
1: Yeah, that's life changing and, and devastating and frightening. And, you know, for, for someone that's been doing what they thought that they were supposed to do or someone who someone else perhaps was responsible for handling that reporting part for them. And it just, it leads to a lot of fear and uncertainty. But the other thing it does is it scares people into thinking that they're not allowed to work then or that I don't want to work because I don't want to jeopardize my benefit. And there is, you know, there it, it is very complicated. All of these systems and service systems are very, very complicated, but there are ways to do it, ways to do it safely. And there are lots and lots of folks out there available to answer questions and provide guidance about that. So yeah, we really promote that. If, if you're not sure, ask. And if you if you get that type of a scary letter, call us. Let us help you. Let us talk you through that and explain what that means and figure out how we can help.
0: And I'm sure you get quite a few of those calls.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a fair number of those.
0: Well, I I did not know that you provided that service, but it is really one that's needed very badly.
1: Yeah, you know, folks often, you know, one of the things that I always tell people when I'm kind of giving them the, the talk about our agency is to, to really recognize the breadth of what we do. And that it's all issues affecting all people with disabilities. Now, that doesn't mean if you call us to ask us about issue X, that we're going to assign an attorney and we're going to take it to the Supreme Court. What that means, though, is that everyone will receive some type of service and assistance and get your questions answered. And so if you have any disability-related questions about anything, to give us a call and so that we can we can talk with folks about that, answer questions and get additional information if necessary. If there's an agency that's more appropriate to handle that than us, then we will help, you know, connect you with them, refer you to them. And like I said, we're we're big on self-advocacy too, because we realize, you know, we want people to be empowered to advocate for themselves. But a lot of times people don't know how to do that on some of that. And so if we can provide people with the tools to do that going forward. Since we can't be with every person with a disability every time you know they're involved in something or they run into a challenge, we want to empower people to learn how to do that themselves. And part of that is just having folks feel that it's okay to ask questions and to ask for more information.
0: Protection and advocacy for assistive technology. What exactly yeah. does that mean and, and what do you do with assistive technology in terms of advocating? Yep, so that program
1: is, Specific to advocating for people to get assistive technology that will support them to be more independent, to work, to live and engage in their communities, just anything really that you can think of. So, a lot of times we find there, like for a, a great example, let's say, is people living in nursing facilities. A lot of our folks we find end up in nursing care facilities for rehabilitation purposes they had a fall maybe they had a surgery and they need some longer term rehabilitation physical therapy occupational therapy that sort of thing and somehow over time often our folks get forgotten about and a few years later perhaps they were there for to rehabilitate you know following a surgery maybe should have been you know the plan was for them to be there 30 to 60 days and lo and behold it's 30 it's 3 years later and they're still there And they want out, they want to go, you know, they want to return to the community. They're relatively young in some instances, but maybe they need a wheelchair or they need some type of communication device. We see that often with folks who have experienced a stroke or some other um, type of a trauma to the Mm -hmm. brain where maybe there's memory related issues or communication issues. And so assistive technology um, program is really to be able to advocate that people get assessed so that they can be, it can be determined whether there are types of assistive technology, some of which are very low-tech and some of which are very high-tech, to help them to either, you know, be discharged from that nursing facility or to be able to just engage in, in verbal communication Just those types of things, even something as simple as a medication reminder, that timers and reminders like on their phones or an iPad or something like that to help remind them to take their medication. And as simple as that sounds, that really can be the difference or a barrier to somebody living in an institutional-type setting versus living in their own apartment. So that's what that program is for, is to really ensure that people have access To the various types of technology or assistive devices that can help for them to live as independently as possible and rejoin their communities if they are not currently in their communities.
0: Now, how does one go about doing that? I know that you have to have in your plan, your objectives Mm -hmm. have to reflect certain things that you want to accomplish in your life, and assistive technology Mm -hmm. has to support those. Mm-hmm. Does that start mm-hmm. with a person-centered plan if a person's in a facility?
1: It can. So if someone, a, person, a person-centered plan or a treatment plan or an individual plan of service, there's lots of different terms for that type of thing that you're referring to, depending on whether somebody maybe is a receives services through community mental health or in a nursing facility at a group home, that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, that really is identifying what the need is. And think about even you and I, we live in our own homes and we live independently for the most part. And for me, it's like I I work, so I have a job. And if I needed some type of assistive technology to assist me at my job, that is is something, let's say that, you know, I needed an adaptive mouse for my computer. I need something maybe with a rollerball because... My hands are compromised from rheumatoid arthritis and I've asked for that from my employer and my employer is not interested. Now, that's not something for me personally that is cost prohibitive, but let's say that it was something that was quite costly and and I really needed my employer to help me to pay for that. It's not something I can just go out and purchase myself. But they're refusing, and that is going to be a barrier to me being able to effectively do my job. I could call protection and advocacy and, and ask for assistance. What do I do about that? It could be something as simple as that I engage in the reasonable accommodation process with my employer, which is requesting an accommodation in writing, and then you get into this interactive process. If it's something that, that warrants an advocate getting involved, letting my employer know, hey, You have to provide an accommodation for this person under the Americans with Disabilities Act and so on. So it really, it depends on the situation. So I don't have an individual plan of service or a treatment plan because that's not my particular situation. But that doesn't mean that as a person with a disability that I don't still have the opportunity to have some advocacy for assistive technology that could legitimately really kind of make or break my
0: employment. I've heard estimates that up to three out of four people with disabilities are not receiving any types of services whatsoever, so they're kind of off wow. the grid when it comes to community mental health or any other kind of public benefit, and I'm assuming yeah. that if they were to call you, you'd be able to help them also, but it'd be a different path.
1: Right. That's right. So, yeah, like I said, it it really depends on the individual um, situation and what you know where they receive their services through and that sort of thing but assistive technology is is everywhere and is available to everyone it's just a matter of you know what service system you work with currently if any and that determines the avenues and the the routes of which you go about doing that but for somebody like you said with a person-centered plan that's something that absolutely could be talked about at a, at a person-centered planning meeting, whether that's their annual meeting or they simply request, you know, an assessment and that sort of, all of that can get started through their community mental health, through their support coordinator or their case manager.
0: Now, in a previous conversation, you mentioned that you focus on the client, which means even if someone is a guardian for an individual, you're focusing on the mm-hmm. needs of the individual with the disability. Correct. And that's kind of interesting because many of us assume that the guardian has full control. If a need comes mm-hmm. up and a guardian is saying what has to be done or what that person needs, I can see a conflict between a guardian and the individual and then what would you do?
1: Yeah, so let me clarify. So you use the word need and so we advocate for the client's expressed choices and wishes not what's in their best interest and not necessarily what they need because they may not be asking for something that they need or they may be asking for something that is contrary to what they need. So it's not, it's not our role to determine what is or isn't in somebody's best interest and whether their needs are all fully being met. It's really to ensure that they have a voice and that they have an opportunity for choice. Now, that's not to say that we win every time and that whatever the client wants, the client gets, because that's not, you know, that's not real life for any of us. I mean, there are laws, there are rules. We don't, we never advocate for anything that's unlawful. But, you know, a common example um, that comes up for us, we do a lot of work in psychiatric institutions. And someone, let's say someone has been recommended by their treatment team to be discharged from the hospital. And most times, a treatment team will recommend that someone go from a hospital to a group home or an adult foster care, which is um, a licensed group home setting. And there are times when the individual, the client says, I don't want to go to a group home. I don't want to share a bedroom with somebody that I don't know. I don't want to live with five or six or 10 other people that I don't know. I want to live in my own apartment. You know, before I came to the hospital, I had my own place. I had my own off. I had lived on my own with some supports and services for many years why can't I do that again and in the instances a lot of times when there is a guardian involved a couple of things happen one is oftentimes people assume whether it's professionals and or the guardian, that the guardian has the authority to, to decide where the person lives And sometimes that is true, but sometimes it's not, because not everyone who has a guardian has a plenary or a full guardian, meaning that the guardian has the authority to make all of those types of decisions. So one thing is to clarify and verify what authorities the guardian actually has. The second thing is that a lot of times people, unfortunately and wrongly assume, because you were in a state hospital regardless of what your history is, where you lived before, that sort of thing, that you can't go back, you can't go to independent living. Almost like, you know, I think it's a bit of a paternalistic view, but thinking that that folks can't really go from such an institutional um, structured setting to such an independent kind of free setting, that that's not You know, that that maybe that's a bit jarring or it would just be maybe too much freedom. I don't know. I don't know what they what they think necessarily. But but what we would do in that instance is have a conversation with the guardian and the treatment team. And one of the questions I always ask is, what is so magical about group home A that they're going to provide to this individual that they can't we can't replicate in some other type of a setting? There are services and supports to provide care and services to people in an independent setting, whether it's in their own apartment, whether they have a roommate of their choice, whatever. Those services and supports exist. It's a lot cheaper to support somebody in the community versus in a group home. There's a lot more autonomy and who does, who wants to live with a bunch of people that they don't know? Grown ups don't want to do that typically. That's something that younger people do. That's what, you know, people want their own privacy and their own space and their own thing. At the end of the day, if the guardian does have placement authority, I can't make them not put that person in a group home and make them put that person in an apartment of their choice. But what I can make them do is have a conversation about it and answer the question. Let's stop and think about it. And sometimes it's a matter of they didn't think about it. They didn't know that the person had lived in their own apartment before they were in the hospital. They didn't they just didn't realize that. But sometimes they re- they have very, you know, what they feel are valid reasons why they want that to occur. And at the end of the day the guardian does if they have placement authority, the guardian does have the responsibility and the authority from the court to make that decision based on what they think is in that person's best interest, which is different from what my role is. And that's okay. And, but also considering the individual's preferences. So sometimes it works out that that conversation goes well and people understand and they can come to some type of an agreement or even some type of compromise where the client's happy and satisfied and there's a plan for the future to maybe increase independence. And sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't always go well. But one of the things that's most important about that is that the client was heard and that they had an opportunity to express what they wanted and why they wanted it, regardless of whether it makes any sense, regardless of whether it's in their best interest. And sadly, sometimes without us, that wouldn't happen. So while not necessarily entirely successful, It's successful in that the client feels respected and they feel heard. And there's a lot to be said for that.
0: There's a lot to be said for having a voice. Absolutely. Yeah. What I wanted to get into today in this part of our program is talking about benefits that are entitled based upon a diagnosis or a specific condition. They're entitled through the Medicaid Provider Manual. Individuals ask for these benefits or these services, and they're denied because they're told that it might not be medically necessary or it doesn't comply with the service manual. And then you find out that it actually does. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that information was willfully misrepresented or represented out of ignorance because of improper training. My concern as a parent and someone who has kind of worked as an, in the advocacy area for other parents is many people, rather than fighting the system, which seems to be overwhelmingly complex, give up and say, that's the way it is. In our particular case, we needed some renovations to our house to make it more accessible and to give my son more independence, and there was some medical necessity behind it, too. And we were told, no, can't do that. Got just short of an administrative hearing, and because I had taken pictures, did research, found in the Medicaid provider manual exactly where it says this is the course of action that should be taken. We stopped short of having that administrative hearing. They had another assessment from an occupational therapist, and everything I was asking for was granted. It took 18 months to get there. Mm -hmm. I should be happy, and I am grateful. But I know that because I did that, there's many other people that are told no and took no. How does someone go about seeking a remedy when they've been told no, and it should have been a yes?
1: Well, you're right. The public mental health system and just the public service system, these are really complicated systems to maneuver and understand. And they're constantly changing. You know, the Medicaid provider manual is updated and revised on a quarterly basis. So that's constantly changing. And sometimes it's minor tweaks and changes, but other times it's pretty significant changes. And so to think that, you know, and that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. And so to think that someone is going to know all of that and let alone understand it and know how to really use that to advocate for themselves is really not all that realistic. And, you know, we at Protection and Advocacy, we do this stuff every single day and it's complicated for us too. So there's that. You know, the other thing that contributes to some of this is I think for whatever reason, whether it's intentional or it's just something that happens, people with disabilities who receive services and their families who have people receiving services from a public system, they're almost made to feel bad or guilty that they're taking that service. You know, it's not unlike people who receive uh, welfare assistance or food stamp assistance, you know, different things that people are made to feel bad or less than because they need that help. And, you know, the bottom line is that parents have a right to have a life. And yes, we all have some type of inherent responsibility to our families and our kids and our parents and our siblings. But that doesn't mean that you are responsible for providing everything for someone else and nothing and having no life for yourself. And we see that a lot with families with kids who have significant disabilities or need a, need a particular level of support to help them. And they're made to feel bad or guilty. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that the people are intentionally doing that, but that is what tends to happen. Often here, you know, there's a limited amount of resources. This is very expensive. If I give it to you, then that's taking from, you know, some other folks, all of that stuff. What it boils down to is that people have to feel empowered and supported not to accept no for an answer on everything. Sometimes no is no, and that's reasonable and it's correct, but sometimes not. And you don't know whether it's correct or not unless you push a little bit more. You dig a little deeper. Ask for some information. Explain to me why. Help me understand. Show me where, the, show me where it says that that's not allowed. Even if you don't know where it says that it is allowed, if you ask them to provide it to you where it says that you can't do that or you can't provide that service, that puts it back on them to be the ones to provide you with the information. Ask for it in writing. And at the end, if you're, if you're still feeling unsure or you're just completely confused or overwhelmed with all of the information and you're, you're not sure, call us and ask. Call another entity and ask. There's lots of advocacy organizations and parent support groups and various places out there. And you can always try to look that information up yourself. It is complicated. It's complex. It's cumbersome. There's so much of it. And it isn't always in one neat little place this in language that we all understand. So call. Call and ask. You can call us. You can, you know, there's information on our website and there are other people talk with other people. Just people have to feel that you don't always have to accept no for an answer. And it doesn't mean if you push or you yell or you demand that you're going to get what you want or need or you're asking for, but you have the right to ask for more information and you have a right to ask for them to explain it in a way that you understand and also to provide it to you in writing when we're met with a no through, you know, a public, the public service system, we don't provide that, or we don't do that. Show me, show me where it says, Oh, we're not allowed to do that. Show me where it says that. And whether I already know the answer or not, I'm asking them you're telling me that you're not permitted to do that. Tell me how, you know, you're not permitted to do that. Show me where it says that you can't, and if they can't produce it, Well, then I think that we're going to continue to have a conversation about how we're going to go about providing this stuff.
0: That is great advice. I think just asking that question and not accepting the no seems Mm -hmm. to imply that you're not going to let go, and perhaps you do know there is a way to resolve it. That is very good advice.
1: Good. You know, our, our clients and their families often have very complicated lives, and It is not unusual for there to be a family with more than one person with a disability or more than one child with a disability. You know, there's a lot going on for folks and sometimes people just don't have the fight in them to ask for more information or to push back. And again, if they're feeling guilty or... They're just not wanting to rock the boat because they don't want to risk losing anything else. They don't want to risk potentially, you know, they don't want to make anybody mad. They don't want to lose any services that they already get, that they just quietly go away and suffer and go without. And, you know, there are big repercussions for that. It's very, very hard on families. You know, it's hard on the family unit. It it delays recovery and independence and learning and, you know, it's there is a ripple effect on a lot of people when things like that happen
0: my advice to parents who have said things like basically based on the shame factor i don't want to ask i don't want to be a burden on society or i don't feel like that we should be doing this because we can afford this it's what you do for your child because someday you won't mm-hmm. be around you want to establish the qualifications for these programs you want to stamp the services because You won't always be there to protect them and to advocate for and to provide for them. It's important to be their voice, not just your own. And I think when parents are able to speak on behalf of their child rather than themselves, they can get a little bit more persistent. Sure. Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the bottom line is it's not about asking for a handout. It's the public service systems that are out there are designed to provide assistance and support to people. That's why they're called entitlements. It doesn't mean that you should get or take more than what you need. It doesn't mean that you should take advantage. It doesn't mean any of that. But what it means is that that's available for people who need it. And it's there for a reason. And there should be no shame in accepting assistance and help from outside of your family unit or from some public service system or or whoever there's no there should be no shame in that absolutely you know i somebody i used to work with many years ago always would say pay me now or pay me more later and that's so true we've seen that in healthcare we've seen that in mental health care and other other related things where people don't get their needs met those needs exacerbate and they lead to additional needs that also then go unmet and you know the overall health of people with disabilities is not great in our state and people need to feel empowered and that it's okay to accept the health and the the help and the services and the support that are out there specifically to help and support them. And when people are supported and healthy and able to recover and engage, they're able to contribute back to the community exactly the way that they want to and exactly the way that we all want them to.
0: I think part of it is that people buy into a great deal of misinformation about all the waste and fraud in Medicare and Medicaid.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's all politics. But the problem is, because they feel that there's a waste and fraud, they are not entitled to or shouldn't be taking advantage of benefits that are there for them. I am paying my tax dollars because some people need these services. And there's no shame involved in getting that kind of help because it establishes better lives for your adult children. And it makes parents, it makes them more productive citizens, too. And, and everybody benefits. It's for right. the benefit of society that we have these programs, not just for the individuals with disabilities.
1: That's right. That's absolutely right. I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, it's unfortunate that not everyone understands that or accepts that. And, you know, there is, there is a great deal of fraud and waste in all systems, not just systems that provide support to people with disabilities. It is really gross, the amount of waste and fraud that there is, but when I need that support and service and there is a system in place to help provide that to me, if I'm not able to to obtain that on my own or with my own resources, then I want that to be available to me. And the, the fact that there is overarching fraud and misuse and waste isn't my problem at the moment.
0: And it isn't each individual recipient's problem either.
1: Yeah, that's exactly my point. People should be mindful of that and aware of that as a society, but that's not our, that's not individual people's responsibilities. The people that are trying to obtain services through those systems, that's not their burden and their responsibility.
0: Michelle, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I learned quite a bit. That's what I love about what I do here. I learn something every time. Right. If, right. if there is somebody who has a question, they can access the website. It might be a little bit of a challenge right now. I know you're going through some changes in the website. But they could call a phone number, too. What number would that be? We'll post that.
1: Yeah, we have a toll-free number that is for our Lansing office. It's one eight hundred two eight eight five nine two three. 288 5923 Like I said, we have our main office in the Lansing area, and then we also have an office up in Marquette. Okay. And we serve the entire state of Michigan for people with disabilities, all disabilities, and uh, anyone can contact us, whether they have a disability or not anyone can contact us with disability-related questions or concerns.
0: What's the number for the Marquette office?
1: Um, actually, we have everybody go right through okay. our Lansing office. Okay. Yeah, we I mean, we cover the whole state regardless. It's not specific. You know, Marquette isn't just specific to the UP and vice versa. So, yeah, that 800 number is the one that's on our website and that we post on our business cards and posters and such. So people can get a hold of us that way and talk to a live person.
0: Excellent. And if someone is listening to this from some other state to access their protection and advocacy organization, they could just Google yeah. Protection Advocacy Iowa and probably find the right yeah. place.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways. So not every state protection and advocacy is has protection and advocacy in their name. Many of them are disability rights and then the state's name. So Disability Rights Iowa, Disability Rights Oregon, what have you. But if you Googled or searched protection and advocacy in Montana or California, whatever, it's going to come up because they are all the designated protection and advocacy system. So that's one way. They could Google it. And we are also a part of, because we're a national network, we are part of our parent organization. It's called National Disability Rights Network, NDRN, and they are housed in Washington, D.C., and we are a member of NDRN. So, if people went to NDRN's website, which is www.ndrn.org, you can search for your state PNA right there. They have a map, and uh, um, it will connect you right. You can link right through there to that state that state p as website as well. So Probably there's a couple of different ways that you can get
0: that. Sounds like the easiest way right there. Yeah. Yep. And what we talked about is largely going to be the same in any state because this is a federal program. There are differences per state, but the concepts are the same. Don't take no for an answer. It might be the answer, but don't take no right away as the first answer. Investigate, look into it, ask questions, be a little bit of a pain if you have to, because that's the way some things get done. But remember, this is for your child's benefit, whether that child is 40 or 50 years old or 18 or 12. It makes no difference. Be the advocate. Michelle, thank you very much. I hope that you survive quite well through COVID-19 and we uh, take the learnings. (laughs) into the way we do business in the future. Best wishes to you.
1: You too, Steve. Thank you so much um, for such a great summary there at the end and for the opportunity to to educate folks about our, our agency and the protection and advocacy system as a whole. It's been my pleasure.
2: Hi, this is Carrie at the Unlocky Chat Cafe. Did you know about Disability Rights Michigan, how they got started, what they do, and how they work? I sure didn't. Some of this information would have been really handy to have when Liam was growing up, but I still see value in it today, even though he's an adult. Well, Steve just walked in, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up a chair. Steve, what did you find surprising from your talk with Michelle?
0: Just about everything, but let's just focus on a few things or we'll be here all night. Right. I was somewhat surprised that most of the calls that they get are related to special education. But when you consider the fact that there's thousands of schools and hundreds of thousands of kids in school, and a good number of those are involved in special education, it's easy to see that there could be some consistency problems from district to district in how things are handled, and some disgruntled parents. So, in a way, it makes sense that the number one call they would get would be about special education. I also was very surprised to hear Geraldo Rivera's name mentioned in relation to all this. <laughs> and what a what a shock it must have been to walk into Willowbrook and see the way people were treated. Right. I have on occasion seen photographs of institutions where it just defies sense of humanity that people would let others live in that kind of filth and yet it happened. Also, Michelle mentioned that Disability Rights Michigan is a client choice based organization. They advocate for the client, even if what the client wants is probably not in their best interest. They still have a chance to have that voice and they advocate for the client. I
2: thought that was extremely powerful when she said that, yeah, we're there and uh, to at least get them a voice. And, you know, gosh, isn't that really what we all want?
0: But what I really like in the second half of the interview. What happens when you're told no and you think it should have been yes? I love where she says, you can ask them, tell me where it says you can't do that, and I want to see it in writing. If you're at a school meeting and you're getting some bad news and the way they're going to handle something, you don't have to take no for an answer. It doesn't mean the ultimate answer might not be a no, but you don't have to just take their word for it.
2: Right? Ask for
0: the proof. I want to see where it says that you can't do this for my son or daughter. Now, the beauty of that is it doesn't mean you have to go down and research through everything. You put the onus on them. You show me where you can't do this.
2: Show me where it says that. Yeah, that was really great. Sometimes you get kind of caught off guard because you, you don't want to seem difficult. And I remember that that happened to me one time. The teacher asked if I could stop by Uh, She wanted to chat with me about something, Liam's teacher, and and so I I went to the school uh, after work by myself just to chat with the teacher, and I walked in, and they were wanting to do a full-blown IEP. I remember that. Unbeknownst to me, I had gotten no notification or anything, and I was just flabbergasted and shocked, and I remember I, I said, excuse me a minute, and I walked outside and called you real quick. And I'm like, oh, my God, they want to do this. I don't know what to do. What do I do? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And you say, Carrie, you don't have to do that. Walk away. You can say, I'm sorry, this isn't convenient for me now, and leave. Why did that thought not enter my head right away?
0: Because we don't want to be difficult. We want to be compliant. We, we want to cooperate agree.
2: cooperate with the educators and the teachers. And the, you know, we want the, we're all on this team together for the benefit of our child, I thought. But they were trying to do something. I don't even remember what it was. I just remember that it was like, oh, you're I remember right. you were
0: crying on the phone. I was
2: hysterical. <laughs> I, I was said, hysterical. Leave. I was so <laughs> caught off guard. And you're like, you don't need to stay there. You need to go right now. You need to leave. And but that
0: like, does indicate right. that, you know, we as parents want to be agreeable. We want to cooperate. We're respecting their authority. Yes. But we have to advocate first for our child. And it doesn't yes. mean that every situation has to be acrimonious. It doesn't mean it's always a fight. I'm not assuming that they're the enemy, but know your rights and then also advocate for your child. And if it doesn't smell right, say, I'm not so sure about that. I think you need to show me in writing where it says this.
2: Right. And I just went back in and I said, you know what? I'm not prepared. Um, I think we need to reschedule this.
0: And they gave you no pushback at all.
2: Nothing. No, no, it was Because they
0: knew that they had violated your rights. They, yeah. And calling that without you even knowing what it was.
2: Right. Okay.
0: I do want to hasten that was not in the state of Michigan. No. It was another state, which I don't want to mention because yeah. we have listeners all over.
2: Right, right. Right. But that be is.
0: reasonable because sometimes it might be a no or it might be an alternative. To sum it all up, it's important to remember you don't have to take no for an answer, at least not the final answer. If you have any questions or concerns about an educational issue or anything from community mental health, a benefit that you think is entitled for your loved one, or a benefit that is being denied, you can call Disability Rights Michigan at 1-800-288-5923. You'll have a chance to leave your name, a phone number, and a brief message, and they will get back to you. If you live in another state, as Michelle indicated during the podcast, Look up disability rights for whatever state you happen to live in, and you will find the organization that can handle your concerns. If you found the information in today's episode helpful, please refer us to a friend who may also benefit from listening. Just ask them to type nlocky.com. that's the letters N-L-A-W-K-I dot C-O-M, in their computer browser, and all of our episodes will magically appear. Also, to receive notification of our podcast episodes as they are released, please subscribe to our podcast through Apple, Spotify, Google, or whatever service you normally use for podcasts. Now, we want to give some credits and recognition to the people that make this happen. We have many people to thank for the production of this podcast. First of all, I want to thank my co-host and the proprietor of the Enlocky Chat Cafe, my lovely spouse and co-conspirator, Carrie Johnson.
2: And I want to thank my dear husband for dragging me into this.
0: You came willingly. Next, we want to acknowledge Alex, our producer and sound engineer, for all the the behind-the-scenes work he does. And then...
2: We want to thank Holly, our web designer and artistic director, for the show and...
0: Daniela Munoz, our intern who manages post-interview communications with our guests, among other things, and just about everything nobody else wants to do. But most importantly, we we want want to to thank thank you, our listeners. Be Well. well.